It is I, Captain Murphy, of whom Jacobin Magazine, the premier socialist publication of record, once said, Jesus fucking Christ. And the Social Democrat Twitter Emperor IPM called a coward. But who is Captain Murphy? I am the macho man of eco-anarchism. Ooh yeah! Speaker for the trees. Nintendo fan. Krampus. Very sad boy, and all around weirdo welcoming you to Leftendo, the voice of the gaming proletariat, and reminding you all that Santa got killed by assassins in a Disney-Coca-Cola partnership to split his likeness rights, so we are celebrating Yule this year. Facts. Facts. Every week on Leftendo, we perform a holy ritual in nihilist navel-gazing so as not to succumb to the in this, the last Yuletide ever. As ever, I'm coming to you from somewhere below the briny, acidic, plasticky deep, where phosphorescent wonders never cease and men fear to tread. This week, episode 12, Sky Tendo and the Mountain of Madness. In this episode, Celeste, Skyrim, Leaks, Skyrim, Sails, and last but not least, Skyrim. So let's dive into the, the news, news from, from hell. Sunday, border patrol agents fired tear gas at Honduras refugees, including women and children, attempting to cross into the United States from Tijuana, literally lobbing weapons over an international border at unarmed civilians seeking refuge. And with that vile show of force has come thousands of hot takes from the media. Everything from Trump is the great Satan to soldiers have to expose themselves to tear gas and basic training, so are you saying that's also a crime against humanity? Lost in the chatter is why these people are seeking asylum. In 2009, the military overthrew Honduras President Zelaya, plunging that Latin American nation into some of the worst violence on earth. And at that time, Hillary Clinton used her power in the State Department to support that coup. And now, these days, gangs control the streets of Honduras. Given that history, if you found yourself in the same situation as these refugees, these people who have hopes and dreams and loved ones, would you not also try to escape? And what better place to escape than the United States, the very nation that plunged your home into chaos? What's lost in this story is not the barbarism of the Cheeto administration, and to be clear, not often stated, the abominator also approved of the use of tear gas at the border repeatedly, but the people who are just trying to escape a mess we created. This is just one more symptom of empire. One more inhuman example of the consequences of America, the great Satan's conduct. A story you will rarely, if ever, hear in the corporate mouthpieces, news broadcasts, or in their tweets. I weep for these refugees. Not just at the border. I weep over the horrors the U.S. government has perpetrated against them from 2009 onward. The U.S. Global Change Research Program, a team of 13 federal agencies, released the fourth National Climate Assessment last week detailing how countless thousands will die as a result of climate change. However, interestingly, if you read about this on CNN as I did, those deaths are seen as an afterthought, with most articles beginning something like this. A new U.S. government report delivered a dire warning about climate change and its devastating impacts, saying the economy could lose hundreds of millions of dollars, or, in the worst-case scenario, more than 10% of its GDP by the end of the century. 
Even when the corporate media chooses to pay lip service to the most pressing issue of our time, an existential threat to all life on planet Earth, they must frame it in exclusively economic terms. Our politicians and media personalities are a death cult, endlessly worshipping at the altar of mammon. If we are to survive, if this is not to be humanity's last breath, the only possible way forward is full-blown revolution. Check out www.communalismpamphlet.net for the social ecologist's vision of what that might look like. But more fundamentally, despite how poor and afraid we all are, we need to start preparing any way we can. Moving on from that cheery news, let's talk about some games so the madness does not engulf us in a well of sorrows in which there is no escape. Apparently, the entirety of Super Smash Bros. Ultimate has been leaked. It began with pics of retail copies showing up on 4chan, then in the following days, further reports hilariously suggested that the game had been sold early and relatively widely at certain Mexican retailers. <laughs> Already, portions of the game have been uploaded to YouTube, including gameplay and many of the remixed level soundtracks, with Nintendo swiftly getting them taken down. Now, I'm not here to judge copyright infringement too harshly. After all, as an anarchist, I believe property is theft. But, I would appreciate it if these hackers and early owners were nice enough to simply wait till the day of release to upload their videos, so as not to spoil anything for the rest of us who are hyped to the fucking moon about this game. At the same time, I know that goes against human nature, so whatever, I guess. Still, I have intentionally avoided watching any videos about the leaks and only read the most vague of articles to keep myself free and ready for excitement, and I suggest the same. Speaking of Super Smash Bros. Ultimate, according to Variety, Ultimate has already broken Nintendo's record as the most pre-ordered game in the company's history. history. Nintendo announced on Friday that not only is the Nintendo Switch title the best-selling game for the console, it's the best-selling Smash Bros. game in the franchise's history. And all that before it's even in our greedy hands. I know as part of a birthday present, I got a copy pre-ordered. My birthday's in a couple days, and I look forward to seeing you in the ring. Bethesda has issued a statement addressing Fallout 76 players' complaints about the numerous bugs in the game, announcing several fixes in an upcoming patch, but remains silent on the overall emptiness of the title. No one expected them to close down 76 or really apologize, but some kind of teaser for storyline DLC or just anything beyond the broken wasteland of the game would have been a welcome announcement for longtime Fallout fans disappointed with the lack of NPCs and story. Interestingly, people who have no history with Fallout, like my brother, seem to like the game far more than the longtime Fallout fans, as is made quite evident in the divergence of opinion and the Fallout vs. Fallout 76 subreddits. Both camps are seemingly just as pissed about the bugs, though. And I must add, since I wrote this, I had a conversation with my brother who has now grown quite sour over Fallout 76. <laughs> And wishes, he told me he wishes he could trade it in for something else, but of course he can't because he got the digital edition. One of the reasons not to buy digital copies of things, even though I do it anyway, and I'm a huge hypocrite. Moving on. New characters are being added to Mario Tennis Aces, including Luma, Boom Boom, and I dare say a sexy-ass tennis-playing Pauline. Those characters are hitting the courts sometime in January and March. 
Despite rampant rumors of Skyward Sword getting a port to the Switch, Nintendo has officially stated it's not happening, disappointing a small but apparently quite vocal part of the Zelda fandom. This latest disappointment in the rumor-mongering games media space reinforces my long-standing opinion that rumors, particularly these kinds of rumors, only harm people's enjoyment of an already quite amazing Nintendo Switch and serve no one but the unscrupulous games media people seeking yummy-yummy clicks, from which to feed off of, like, happiness vampires. UPDATE! Since writing this, a wave of new videos have been uploaded asking the wonderful ad revenue generating question, Is Nintendo lying about not bringing Skyward Sword to the Switch? One even bundles the question together with the long debunked N64 mini rumors of last month. Your disappointment is their lifeblood. Speaking of YouTube vampires though, Nintendo has finally done away with their frankly insane creators program opening up the floodgates to content creators. If you were unaware, Nintendo has been very protective of their IP being streamed on the likes of YouTube and Twitch, and created a scheme by which approved partners shared ad revenue with them allowing those creators to post videos of Nintendo games. While it's true this news mostly affects those who are attempting to make money on said gameplay footage, of far greater importance it should mean less flagging of videos for smaller channels just trying to share their games they love and build a following. Thank Mario, Nintendo has given up on this ridiculous protectionism. Now if only they'd leave ROM sites alone. Public reviews have gone up for the PlayStation Classic, which releases December 3rd. As telegraphed in mid-November's impressions of the system, it has garnered mediocre reviews, with IGN giving a 5.5 and saying, This system will ultimately go down as something of a missed opportunity, going on to call it a half-hearted attempt by Sony, and not really comparable to Nintendo's fully formed mini-consoles. Still, getting myself in the Yuletide spirit as a positive glimmer of hope to classic PS1 fans. If, like those Nintendo systems, it can easily be hacked, there may yet be some use for the system. Only time will tell. Via the Mozilla Foundation Security Polling System, a community which allows users to share their experiences with things like questionable webcams, microphones or tracking systems, and similar issues that could cause security concerns, the Nintendo Switch has been voted the least creepy Christmas gift for this holiday season. Though not perfect in that regard, amongst the electronic gizmos available, the Switch is the one least likely to give your information to Big Brother. A somewhat comforting thought in this era of the illusion of privacy. But um, all that out of the way, it's time for what I've been playing this week. Breath of the Wild! I have finally defeated Thunderblight Ganon, and taken the Divine Beast Va Nabaris. Hell yeah! Now, I am traveling towards the last two Divine Beasts. Along the way, though, I've noticed something. At every stable I've visited, there is this little old man from the Kakarik... I can't pronounce things. Kakariko village, usually painting a scene. He kept talking about the fairy I had already discovered just outside that village, the one that upgrades your clothes. He apparently has not discovered her hiding place. On my way towards one of the Divine Beasts, I decided to go back to the village to talk to Impa again, and wouldn't you know it, that little old man was there. So, I talked to him and decided to show him where the fairy was. We got up the long hill road, but just as he was about to make it to the fairy's grove, he got too tired and had to stop. Instead of seeing it himself, he simply asked for a picture. 
The Sheikah slate has a camera function, so I did just that. The little old man was overjoyed, but had nothing to offer me except the most important thing of all, knowledge. You see, Link has been asleep for 100 years and cannot remember his past. But the Sheikah slate he has belonged to Princess Zelda, and it is Impa's opinion that if he can find the locations of the pictures in that slate, perhaps his memories will come back to him. So the little old man looked through the pictures and found one with a large stone arch surrounded by amazing stone buildings on either side carved into the mountains and a valley between them. He said it was east of the village. So I set out first on my trusty steed, Eponia, technically Eponia 2, rest in peace, Eponia 1, you'll never be forgotten. Then on foot, climbing mountains and gliding down to the most beautiful ruins of a passage between mountains with a river running through it. At the end, after facing mostly low-level enemies, I had a flash of memory, and everyone was there. It was the beginning of the war with Ganon, 100 years ago. Princess Zelda was sad, but determined to fight on. It's things like this that elevate this game to exquisite art. I am loving my time with Breath of the Wild. The exploration is satisfying, as are the weapons, cooking, etc. But what sets it apart from other open-world games, such as the one I'm about to talk about, is its emotional resonance and story. I don't just feel the thrill of adventuring in this game. I feel real human emotions like sorrow and joy. Needless to say, I love this game. But moving on to the other open-world game I've been playing quite a bit, if you listen to Minisode Quattro, you know that there was a huge sale in the eShop for the Thanksgiving week weekend, and no game tempted me more than Skyrim, which was on sale for $29.99, the lowest I've ever seen it, new or used, physical or digital. I tried to resist, but I have a certain addiction for Elder Scrolls games. The thrill of exploration, and to be frank, theft and murder in that thoroughly realized world is impossible for me to pass up. It had been a couple years since I played Skyrim, and this is a better version with better graphics and all the DLC I never finished, uh, barely even played, honestly. So after anxiously going back and forth about whether or not I needed another life-sucking game, really more of a lifestyle than a game, if you follow me, eventually I gave in and picked it up. I know talking about Skyrim is probably pretty boring for anyone but the most avid Elder Scrolls fans at this point, so perhaps I'll just talk about how it runs on the Switch and quickly lay out how I tend to play these games. On the first point, it plays quite well. Given this is a 7-year-old game, the cockroach of gaming as my man Jim Sterling likes to call it, and the Switch has the likes of Warframe on it now, it's certainly better. I've noticed no frame rate issues, and while this version is not exactly the remastered edition, Bethesda says it's a mix of assets from the OG version and the remastered edition, which we can infer was to keep battery life and frame rates optimal. It definitely looks better than it did when I played it on the 360, which I might add I bought years after its release used, just to continue playing Skyrim when my brothers upgraded to the X-Bone. One thing I have noticed is load times are very, very good in this version. You have to understand though, my last console was the Wii U. I'm a Nintendo kind of guy, so I never had a PS4 or X-Bone to compare any of this to, and I still don't. The Switch is not an extra console to me. It's my only console. So the load time of just about 6 seconds when going into caves, ruins, shops, etc. is impressive to me. Anyway, I like to play Elder Scrolls games as a thief slash assassin. I have since Morrowind on the OG Xbox way back in the day, another system I basically only played Elder Scrolls on. <laughs> 
I tend to join the Thieves Guild and the Dark Brotherhood and take those quest lines more seriously than the main story, though I am also doing that, slowly. I usually pick a Khajiit as my character race for their night vision and natural affinity for theft and murder. I don't mean that in a racist way, though, <laughs> obviously. Uh, that's what is implied in the game, that they are good at being thieves and assassins. There are few things more satisfying in these games than picking a lock and discovering an enchanted dagger that steals souls or murdering a racist Nord. I get a lot of the same enjoyment in Skyrim as I do in Zelda Breath of the Wild, but I feel that the systems are deeper in the Elder Scrolls games. Breath of the Wild, however, is more emotionally resonant with a better overall story and is generally a better game. In fact, it is a masterpiece. Whereas I would say Skyrim is very good and very enjoyable and very deep but not a masterpiece. The greatest enjoyment I find in Skyrim is exploration, and it's almost limitless. So, I'm addicted again. Been playing it almost non-stop since I got it, and I haven't even gone back to my beloved Morrowind. Best game in the series, in my opinion, to take on the other Dragonborn in the DLC, but I will, and very soon. Still, I said almost non-stop. There's one other game that has caught my attention in a big way. Celeste was also on sale, and while it was not in my minisode, given it was not on deep, deep discount, my curiosity got the better of me. I've been wanting to play this game for quite a while, and I'm so glad I finally pulled the trigger. Celeste is an oddity for me. I love platformers, so that's not so odd, but I generally do not like the tough-as-nails variety. Celeste seems to miss that threshold for being unfun because despite being hard as fuck, that wind stage, my god, that was hard. It always seems doable. And if you just keep trying, as the encouraging messages you get between levels put it, you actually do learn from your mistakes and it's deeply satisfying when you make it through a particularly hard screen. What sets it apart is not just its excellent balance of skill and platforming, though. It's also its setting and the way it tells the story of a woman who wants to challenge herself and fight back against her inner demons, or demon, and the strange, compelling characters she meets along the way. Characters like the hotel manager, whose spirit seemingly just couldn't leave his beloved remote luxury hotel when everyone else did. A good-natured mountain climber just trying to have an adventure. Or a cranky old lady who hides wisdom in biting comments. I look forward to seeing where the story goes from where I left off and challenging myself to make it to the top of the mountain because if I work hard enough, I know I can. And of course, look forward to more updates on uh, those three games. Um, Skyrim, not so much. I might just mention it now and then, but definitely Celeste and definitely Breath of the Wild. Okay, well, that done. Now it's time for a reading series. <laughs> Once again, I've decided to highlight three short articles, starting with the depressing, then to the serious, and finally closing out on the hilarious. Starting with the depressing, though, did you remember that we are involved in one particular war that cannot be disputed? Of all the hundreds and hundreds of secret and semi-secret wars, whether that be supporting the genocide in Yemen or in Syria or South America, Africa, there is one war that everyone agrees still exists. I don't know if you remember that. It's called the Afghanistan War. And Common Dreams is reporting, U.S. airstrike kills at least 30 civilians, including 16 children. 
Reading from the article, officials in Afghanistan's Helmand province and international media are reporting at least 30 civilians, including 16 children, were killed in the latest U.S. airstrike targeting Taliban militants. Reuters reports the latest U.S. mass casualty bombing in Afghanistan came amid a surge in aerial operations aimed at forcing the Taliban to the negotiating table after more than 17 years of U.S.-led war there. 17 fucking years. Officials said Afghan government advisors and U.S. troops were attacked late on Tuesday by Taliban fighters based in a compound in Garzmir district, south of Marja, in southern Helmand. The militants attacked the Afghans and Americans with machine guns and rocket-propelled grenades, according to the NATO-led Resolute Support Forces. Provisional Governor Mohammad Yasin Khan said Afghan troops called in airstrikes, with U.S. airplanes responding with attacks that killed both Taliban fighters and local civilians. A local resident told Reuters that foreign forces bombed the area and bombs hit my brother's house. He said the victims included women and 16 children. Another local resident, Fida Mohammed, said more victims remain buried beneath the rubble of the compound. The NATO-led coalition said it was unaware of any civilians in the area of the airstrike. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. If you don't laugh about these things, you cry, right? It's, it's a serious thing. At the same time, these kind of things, like, oh, we didn't know that the civilians were in there. Those are not serious statements. U.S. airstrikes in Afghanistan have sharply increased in recent months. Part of a strategy meant to drive the Taliban into talks aimed at ending the longest war in U.S. history. A spike in civilian casualties have accomplished this surge. Last month, a United Nations report revealed that the number of Afghan civilians, mostly women and children, killed or injured by NATO and the Afghan airstrikes has risen 39% in 2018. The U.S. report said 313 civilians have been killed and another 336 injured from January 1st through September 30th. More casualties than all of 2017. What the fuck is going on? While the spike in innocent deaths is alarming, the 649 casualties represent just 8% of all Afghan civilian casualties for 2019. Ground engagements, improvised explosive devices, and suicide attacks account for nearly three-thirds of civilian casualties this year. Late October, General John W. Nicholson Jr., the top U.S. military commander in Afghanistan, promised to unleash a tidal wave of air power meant to overwhelm the Taliban. This is the beginning of the end for the Taliban, Nicholas vowed, although... The militant group continues to mount fierce resistance to the Afghan government and NATO forces. I'm sorry, uh, this is not, these are not funny issues, but it's just like, this is the beginning of the end for the Taliban, Nicholas vowed. It's just, it, it's so dumb, it's laughable, right? I mean, it's the, the statement that they didn't know there were civilians there is so dumb, it's laughable. It's, it's not laughable when civilians die. I'm, I'm sorry for my tone, but uh, it's just... It's become a farce, a demonic farce. And again, you can either laugh or you can cry. You're always going to be angry. I'm always going to be fucking angry about all this. But you can either laugh or cry. Reading on, the increase in Afghan casualties mirrors a similar rise in civilian casualties in most of the seven countries under attack by the United States. The seven countries we know of, anyway. 
While campaigning for president, Donald Trump said he would bomb the shit out of Islamic State militants and kill their families. His administration has fulfilled this promise, loosening rules of engagement meant to protect civilians and resulting in the deaths of thousands of Iraqis and most recently, Syrian civilians from U.S.-led bombings. Last May, U.S. Defense Secretary James Mattis announced that the U.S. was shifting from a policy of attrition to one of annihilation in the war against ICE, just as a surge in bombing was killing large numbers of civilians. Cities including Mosul, Iraq, and Riyadh, Syria, were virtually destroyed, while intense bombing continues in Syria's Dire Ezzar province in an effort to drive ISIS from its last remaining strongholds. In the wider U.S.-led war against terrorism, death toll estimates range from the conservative figures of around half a million to possibly more than two million. Since the Islamic terror attacks of September 11, 2001, the United States has attacked and killed innocent men, women, and children in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, Iraq, Libya, Syria, and, and many, many more, more that, that we are not supposed to know about. And that is the end of that quite depressing article from Common Dreams. It is worth remembering that we continue to be at war all over the world and that... As much as I want, say, for example, Medicare for All or uh, greater welfare in this capitalist nightmare world, until we address empire and utterly destroy it, even helping ourselves with those kind of programs will still be done on the backs of the innocent all over the world. So we must never forget that as socialists, as anarchists, we are anti-imperialists. But moving on from that depressing, depressing news, let's move on to the more serious in terms of not depressing, but kind of just dumb. And that is an article in The Nation in regards to Angela Nagel's recent article about the leftist case for nationalist... <laughs> I'm sorry. The leftist case for closed borders. This article is entitled, There is no left case for nationalism. Endorsing nationalism isn't compromised, it's compromised. In the face of far-right extremism, liberals and leftists have been asking themselves about the viability of their politics. This is not a bad thing. A shakeup on the scale we are seeing today should push us all to think more critically about our beliefs, our tactics, and their broad impact on the world. But this self-reflection, often conducted publicly, has given rise to a tendency from some on the left to play the adults in the room and denounce their more radical comrades. In the recent essay titled, The Left Case Against Open Borders, Angela Nagel, the author of Kill All Normies, takes her fellow leftist to task, fellow leftist, for advocating for free migration. She characterizes the ideals of the open border left as an intransigent and short-sighted form of purism, one that works against other left projects like redistribution, protecting organized labor, and universal programs. Her argument is full of straw leftists, as it always is, let's be clear. She cites the economist George Borjas to make a point about the negative effects of migration on wages, without noting that other economists have thoroughly discredited the work. She later refers to Karl Marx's support for Irish nationalism to prove that open border politics are somehow incongruous with her vision. Never mind that there's a long history of socialist internationalism and that the passage she invokes was less about Marx's loving borders than his supporting the Irish workers against British imperialism. More important for Nagel is her argument that advocates for free migration are useful idiots 
to corporate interests and the libertarian think tanks like the Cato Institute. She claims that the open border left, by advocating a more open migration system, does capital's bidding, making it easier to find migrant workers to exploit. But in the same way that Nagel's critique of open borders does not necessarily mean she shares motives with ethno-nationalists, and Tucker Carlson's appearance notwithstanding, I think it's safe to assume that she's not. I totally disagree. A left open border policy does not necessarily follow from or in aid the interests of corporations or neoliberal economics. Most on the left who advocate for the movement of people, in fact, insist that open border policy also requires a radical rethinking of what life is like within and outside those borders. For an open border politics to work, we would need policies addressing the inequalities between people within a state and the inequalities between states. The point is that without unjust forms of inequality between states and citizens, no exploitable foreign class of laborers would exist for big business to take advantage of. Nagel has a fair point about the ill effects of brain drains on developing countries, and it is true that in many respects, globalization, as we know it, has always been on the right's terms. But not liking the globalization that we have should not cause us to disavow the globalization we ought to have. I would consider internationalism a better word for that, but I, I'm, I'm going with the uh, author's terminology for now. There are many things in this article I don't agree with, but I do like its overall message. I don't like this sentence, for example. It is unfair to single out Nagel, especially given that she's an expert on internet trolls, not migration, and has perhaps succeeded in trolling us. However, it is worth examining Nagel's arguments about borders as just one of the volley of pieces by liberals and people to the left of center who have derided the out-of-touch utopianism of open border advocates and called on them to espouse a kinder, gentler nationalism. Variants of this argument have come from former Harvard president Larry Summers, <laughs> who gives a fuck, author John Judas, and former Secretary of State Hillary Rodham Clinton, to name just a few. These thinkers all share a set of assumptions. Migration, for many of them, is a zero-sum game, whether because an influx of new citizens will incapacitate states from administering welfare programs, or because their sheer presence will exuberate xenophobia and swing elections to the right. They contend that achieving justice and equality within a country's borders comes at the cost of achieving justice and equality outside it. They also argue that the current moment is somehow exceptional and not an indictment of right-wing policies, both at the local and global level, and that if the political dilemma of our time is dealt with properly, then we can all happily go back to a mythical liberal world order. Their impulses are understandable. Of course, we ought to do everything in our power to defeat Trumpism and its international variants. Of course, pragmatism matters, but it's important to remember that the policies formulated in a crisis have a tendency to stick around, and how we treat migrants now is how we will almost certainly treat migrants for the foreseeable future. In a 2016 Washington Post op-ed, Summers, an early adopter of the genre of polemic, epitomized this tendency to ignore the real sources of xenophobia when he encouraged liberals to embrace a responsible nationalism in the face of populist opposition to international integration or 
globalization. Liberals, he argued, need to put citizens ahead of some notion of global good. In the New York Times, Judas, which might not be how you pronounce his name, but who cares, Judas made his case for a liberal nationalism on similar grounds, insisting that to achieve these historic objectives, liberals and social democrats will have to respond constructively to rather than dismiss the nationalist reaction to globalization. Today's nationalist revival, he added, is in reaction to the failure of global, not nation-based initiatives that sailed over the heads of ordinary citizens. They're both right that governments should do far more to help workers and poor people, but to do so requires a global framework with new forms of redistribution across borders, not just within them. Wealth is unevenly distributed. So is power. These new structures, be they a global accountability mechanism for multinational taxation, or more say for workers around the world and trade agreements, need to adapt to the realities of the 21st century, not try to take us back to a previous time. The left-wing economist J.W. Manson has recently made arguments analogous to Summers and Judas's, albeit in his words cautiously, calling on the left to argue for policies that delink the world's economies while remaining unequivocally pro-migrant to alleviate the worst effects of globalization on working people. That might mean holding a firm like Apple accountable to actual tax responsibilities based on where its clientele is rather than where its profits are booked or breaking up conglomerates into smaller local parts. And that would be fine. At the same time, those policies seem as likely or unlikely to happen as the adoption of a global wealth tax or a database of the offshore wealthy or a way to cut carbon emissions around the world or any number of supranational agreements. Thinking primarily in terms of the nation is easier, of course. It's an older political form, and indeed the default one. But it also betrays a lack of imagination. And more worryingly, it misses what is really at the heart of the current crisis. The problem has never been globalization in and of itself, but that the globalization we have has put the well-being of capital over the ordinary men, women, and children. And this is where we definitely agree. Of course, globalization is flawed. Of course, it sucks. But the problem with foreign money isn't that it's foreign. It's that it's money. In a recent Guardian interview, Clinton made a slightly different case for liberals to embrace a nationalist rhetoric about borders. If liberals in Europe make concessions on immigration, they will be able to better compete with the far right. A charitable, read dumb, reading of her statements would conclude that in an era menaced by the extreme right, she's calling for a politics of compromise. But Clinton evidently came out of her 2016 deplorables gap with the wrong lesson. Instead of pinning populist discontent to a range of easily identifiable social and economic ills, her takeaway was to start speaking like the deplorables. Of course, she was always right-wing. Always. There is a difference between compromise and being compromised. And that is why a strain of pro-nationalist thinking on the left and among liberals is so dangerous. It is hard to miss that Nagel published her essay in American Affairs, a magazine that set out to give intellectual legitimacy to Trumpism, failed miserably at that ambition, and now has rebranded itself as a space for ideas with no home on either side. But there should be sides. Politics is not only about finding middle ground. It's about building a base on the strength of your own principled positions. Liberals and the left don't have to meet a revanchist right on its terms. We should be trying to bring over those who might be compelled by our arguments. And the only way that's going to happen is if you just cast out the fucking liberals. But this is the nation, so you do what you can. 
Nagel accuses leftists of shooting themselves in the foot. But it's hard not to think that it's arguments like hers that damage the left by legitimizing the idea that someone arbitrarily born on the wrong side of a line is less deserving of a good life. It's true that your instincts might be to save the drowning child at your feet, not the one you can't see. But the point of a left ethics is to bridge the gap, not widen it. The willingness of the left to play by the far right's rules and according to their narrative is part of what got us into this mess. We may be howling at one another not to normalize Trump's absurd theatrics, but the normalization we really should be worried about is what happens as a result of them. And I might add, just uh, at the end of this, that Glenn Greenwald went to bat for Angela Nagel's ridiculous arguments for nationalism. And it, it's quite telling that he compared her um, ideas to those of Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn. They are similar. There's no denying that. But the difference is Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn are politicians that have never actively courted the right wing. They are wrong on those particular immigration ideas. Jeremy Corbyn is not very bad on immigration either, not compared to Bernie Sanders and certainly not compared to Angela Nagel, but he has some ideas that are kind of bad. Um, They are wrong, but Angela Nagel is actively courting the right wing. She is part of the Red-Brown Alliance. She's a strategist. There's no denying it at this point. Why don't we just cast her out and forget about her? I'm, I'm tired of hearing about her. She's a fucking idiot. Anyway, moving on to our last article of the week and Definitely the funniest one. It is from the splinternews.com. Proud Boys failed to redact their new dumb bylaws and accidentally doxed their elders. Okay. I'm not even going to read all of this. Just a little bit. Just just for flavor. The Proud Boys, one of the strangest and most pathetic branches of the alt-right, are having a crisis of leadership following the weird, stunt-like departure of their leader, Vice Media co-founder Gavin McGinnis. The Proud Boys have been busy frantically trying to figure out who gets to be the boss of the so-called Western chauvinist organization and tell everyone else how many times they get to masturbate each month. Anyway, remember that part about the names redacted? The smart boys fucked it up. In the section about the elder chapter, the names of the chapter members are highlighted in black in the public document. But it turns out if you just highlight them with your cursor, they show right up. That's amazing. The Proud Boys will always be cucks. <laughs> I just think it's great. Uh, you should look this up. You just have to highlight with uh, with your computer the PDF document that they released and you'll see all the redacted names of the chapter of elders, which is just the ridiculous buffoonery you would expect from the idiotic Proud Boys. I love it. Anyway, uh, that's it. I just wanted to uh, highlight those three somewhat interesting articles and just to give you like a, you know, something to think about, uh, especially that first one. The second one, let's just never talk about Angela Nagel again and the Proud Boys continue to be dangerous yet hilarious. Anyway, We'll be right back after this. Six great issues plus six free strategy guides on a hot new game. That's twice the power for still 15 bucks. Wow, call now. Well, that's the show, Sea Monkeys. Leftendo is going bi-monthly for the rest of the holiday season. I know that isn't much different, considering how late I've been with these episodes. But it's best I make it official until I get back on track. 
No worries, though. I've got some interesting ideas for the Yuletide season. Anyway, before you go, if you like my mumbling nonsense, please consider supporting it at patreon.com forward slash leftendo. There, for just three fifty, you can get access to an upcoming sister podcast called Left Tunes, where me and my comrades will be discussing our favorite cartoons. And I'd like to let you know that the first episode about Samurai Jack featuring my old friend Cheetah Squad has been recorded and only needs to be edited. It will come out whenever I get around to it, but hopefully quite soon. A massive shout-out and thank you to Issa and Rai for being my patrons. Don't forget, if you become a patron, you will also get a shout-out on the show and my deepest thanks. That's patreon.com forward slash leftendo. If you're new to Leftendo and would like to subscribe, just search Leftendo in Apple Podcasts. And hey, while you're there, leave a review, but be gentle or else lube me up first. Reviews help me get up in the ranking so that more people can see my podcast. And I would really appreciate it if some of you would go ahead and do that. Thank you very much. You can find me at Anarcho Murphy and the show at Leftendo, where you can follow updates on games I'm currently playing, including screenshots and short videos, plus my own beautiful brand of cynical leftist humor. Lately, there's been a lot of... Skyrim uploads there, but um, there's also been some uh, wonderful Celeste stuff. It's just really satisfying to uh, get through some of them really hard screens and then share it with y'all. Anyway, Sea Monkeys, thanks for listening. A Wall of Luigi forever. Peace out. <laughs> <laughs>